south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 244, covering the week of January 4th through January 8th, 2021. Glad to have you back on the program. Very happy New Year to everybody. We're glad to be back. Glad to be back in the saddle. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We will give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. It's a great book by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. You can also pick up a copy of that, a hard copy, if you want to. If you go to Amazon.com, just look for the title, Exploring the Southern Tradition. You can buy a version of it there, so you can have a copy to hold in your hand. But if you just want an ebook version, it's a great way to do it by simply giving us an email address. Also, remember, we exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, you like the podcast, the website, conferences, everything that we do, consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. We've started 2021 tax year, but it's never too early to start giving to the Institute. We are in for what I think is going to be a pretty dark time in 2021, though I do have hope that the Institute is going to continue to get better and do more with our mission. So, and all that relies on you. So if you like what we do, consider a donation to the Institute. Also, download our free mobile app. Just go to your app store, look for Abbeville Institute. That will pop up. It's a great way to keep up with the Institute on the go. Uh, Remember, all our lectures there are free of charge. Our, uh, Our podcast, of course, is free of charge. Share the podcast around on social media. Do what you can to get people thinking about the Southern tradition. Uh, it is the only way, the, the only organic way to grow a following. And we really are interested in that. We've got a lot of exciting things in store for 2021. We've got our first Zoom conference coming up January 26th. As I'm recording this, there are about 15 seats left. So if you were on the email list, you should have gotten an email about that. But I will send out another one. 15 seats left. It's going to be a lecture by the great Tom DiLorenzo, The Problem with Lincoln. And so this will be the first of our Zoom conferences for 2021. We're looking to do one of these a month. So this one, January 26th, we'll have one in February. Topic, I I have a topic. I'm just working behind the scenes to try to make sure we solidify everything. We've got other plans for more videos. We've got plans for some website changes. We've got a lot of great stuff in store, plus our summer school and other things we're doing. So uh, buckle up for 2021. It's going to be an interesting time. But all that said, Let's talk about the material we had for this particular week. And again, glad to be back here. I mean, this is uh, this is an honor to come on and be able to talk to you all once a week. Um, or if you go over to my my personal podcast, The Brian McClanahan Show, you might get me two or three times a week. So it's always an honor to talk to you and get your feedback about things. But look, everything that's happening this week, everything that's going on since we last talked, which was the second week of December, it's been a couple of weeks now, since we were on uh, with the podcast. But so many things were happening. We saw the United States Congress pass a National Defense Authorization Act, which allowed for the removal of uh, Confederate names from United States military installations. That was a big issue, and we have Boyd Cathy writing about that this week. We've seen the Stonewall Jackson statue come down at VMI. A lot of things are happening. We've seen, of course, Robert E. Lee pulled out of the United States Capitol. So all kinds of things are going on uh, with the attack on the South. And this is bigger than, than the Confederacy. Okay, 
Look at the news as we had the incident at the Capitol a couple of days ago where you have the guy walking around with the Confederate flag. And look at how people are, are discussing that in the mainstream media. It's embarrassing the eighth grade level information that people have about John C. Calhoun. And I do blame this, not just on the leftist historical establishment, but also people like Alan Gelzo and Victor Davis Hanson and others who are quote-unquote conservatives who have spent a lot of time in the last few years and the last decade or more ripping apart the South. Because you see, to them, the South is the antithesis of everything good in America. If there's anything good, it never came from the South. The only good things that ever came from the South were the Southern founders. And even they weren't good enough because, of course, they were also slave owners. And so we have to always apologize for that, even though none of us had any connection with that. None of us ever, no, nobody in the United States that lives now ever owned slaves. What do we have to apologize for for th things that people did 200 years ago? or 150 years ago. I mean, this is beyond the level of stupidity. But this is what people think we should do. Uh, and by doing so, you play into the hands of the progressive left and the progressive right. You see, Alan Gelzo and Victor Davis Hanson will run around saying they're conservatives, but they're really not. They're part of the progressive left. They're part of this American exceptionalist position that the neoconservatives have been pushing now for quite a long time, 40 years or more. Um, and it's embarrassing these people are even called conservatives. But beyond that, the South is always the target of their vitriol. You see, if the South wasn't around, the United States would have progressed in a different way. It would have been the shining city upon a hill that John Winthrop, or John Weintrip as the Yankees would have called him, the shining city upon a hill that would have provided great things for the entire world. And that's why we need to have this aggressive foreign policy. That's why we need to go out and make sure we're invading every country around the globe and taking, getting our American democracy to them. They're going to take it or they're going to die. Well, you could say that there were imperialists in the Southern tradition. There were imperialists in the South, and certainly you can find them. But we also have some great examples of non-interventionists in the South. And I think you know, Claude Kitchen of North Carolina comes to mind in World War I, who heroically stood up and voted against the war, and then walked out of the chamber. That's, an, that's courage, because the United States was emphatically behind, at that point, getting into war, getting into war in Europe in World War I. So you've got this great tradition in the South that still offers something for America. This Jeffersonian vision of America still offers something, even if, even if it's being ignored and, of course, abused at the center. And this is something we should expect. When you look at the Trump phenomenon, Trump was able to encourage people to vote for him based on an understanding of, he had a, a limited Jeffersonian understanding of the central government. But at the end of the day, he was still a Lincolnian nationalist. And you see everything that happened in the Capitol. It's all response and all result of Lincolnian nationalism. It's something we've talked about on this podcast and on our website now for going on seven years. It's hard to believe our reboot was seven years ago, but it was. And so the big issues that are now confronting America are related to this age-old debate between Jefferson and Hamilton and the proper role and sphere of the central government, going back to the proponents and opponents of the Constitution. 
The opponents of the document said that we're going to have this oppressive central authority. It's going to run roughshod over the states. It's going to create an elected king. It's going to do all these things. The judiciary is going to get out of hand. They were promised none of those things would happen, and that's why the Constitution was ratified. But yet we've seen that happen. And so we have these two Americas, these two American visions that are incompatible in many ways, but that the Jeffersonian vision would solve some of the problems that we see in the central government today. Part of the reason Americans are so angry is because we have 50 people controlling the other 50 people. Federalism solves that issue. When you look at some of the things that Trump is blamed for, for example, whether it's the COVID-19 situation, the amount of deaths and sicknesses that we've had from that, which uh, Trump really had nothing to do with other than the governors having full latitude to do whatever they wanted. And that's the constitutional position to take in this regard. Trump, as president, cannot direct the governors to do anything. So what we're seeing in America with, with the terrible results in New York and California and other places, with the terrible sicknesses going on there, this is part of a problem that goes back to the governors, not to the president of the United States. And But I will tell you that when Joe Biden becomes president, I don't think they're going to focus on Biden as much. They'll turn their attention to governors because Biden will not be held accountable for anything. If deaths continue to skyrocket, if deaths continue to go up, well, Biden won't take the blame for any of that. It'll be the governor's. It'll be their fault, not Biden's fault. And that's because, again, we have the slaves are being focused on the center, and but a center left. The center right always gets the blame. The center left usually never does. And so there has to be some other fall guy for it, and it's going to be the governors in the states. But still, the Southern tradition offers something great. It offers something that's valuable for America, and that's what we try to do on a regular basis. And these military bases that Boyd Cathy talks about, you know, what 2020 meant for Southerners? Well, it meant that we're the permanent minority. It meant that the South is never really going to have much of a say anymore. When you're betrayed by your own people, when you have congressmen from the South voting to change the names of bases, the neoconservatives have taken over the entire conservative establishment, and they've won. You, you wouldn't have seen this 50 or 60 years ago. You wouldn't have seen it even when Joe Biden was in office and you still had Southerners and Joe Biden's running around talking about, well, Delaware could have been a, I mean, could have been a Confederate state, had a lot of Southerners in it. He wouldn't dare say this now, but even 30, 40 years ago, that was perfectly acceptable to say, but not anymore. 30 years ago, you could get away saying that, not anymore. Even 20 years ago, you could get away saying that, not anymore. And that's part of a concerted effort by the progressive left and also the neoconservatives. And I, there's this, a book that uh, it didn't get much attention. Conservative talk radio talked about it a little bit. It was a history of uh, the Reconstruction period, essentially. And it's from Oligarchy to Democracy, I think the title is, by a guy named Forrest Neighbors. Now, Forrest Neighbors considers himself to be a conservative, but he writes in the book that he thinks Confederate monuments should come down. And yet you have people like Alan Gelzo and Victor Davis Hanson now running around saying Confederate monuments should stay up. For years, they have been pushing the narrative that the Confederacy is treason, that Robert E. Lee is a traitor, that everybody in the South at that particular time period should be banished from our public view. And now they're saying these monuments should stay up. The level of hypocrisy and stupidity for any conservative listening to any of these nincompoops anymore is beyond me. But yet this is what we do because they have taken over the conservative movement and we're seeing the end result with the disaster of now the ultimate disaster of the Trump administration and the Congress, which we've elected people 
to Congress. And even the objections to the NDAA that came out of the Southern delegation wasn't really based on the basis. It was based on other parts of the bill that they didn't like. So Southerners now have become persona non grata. Uh, I'm surprised now there's this image in the U.S. Capitol of Charles Sumner and John C. Calhoun I, I doubt that that, that that portrait of Calhoun is going to stay there very much longer. After this image of the guy walking around with the Confederate battle flag in the Capitol and now the vitriol that's being shown. And, of course, what people don't, I mean, people have pointed out, but there was a security guard sitting here. This was some type of major insurrection. Why was the security guard just standing around like, hey, who's this guy walking around with the flag? He's not bothering anybody. But, of course, because he has a Confederate battle flag, he is now the enemy of the state. This is where we are in 2021, a symbol that has long been attached to not just uh, defiance, but also to the South. I mean, it was a symbol of Dixie for so long. And certainly people misuse the symbol, just like they misuse, can misuse any symbol. And that's the unfortunate part of it. But it's a symbol of, of defiance. It's a symbol, uh, and people have used it all over the world as a symbol of defiance. It's a symbol of decentralization. It's a symbol of, in many minds of people in the South, the original Constitution. It's what it means. Now, we know that people will hijack, again, hijack a symbol and use it for things that others say it's not there for. We know that the U.S. flag is uh, denounced across the world and burned because people say that flag means these things. And we say, no, it doesn't. So where's the difference? The hypocrisy, again, is so thick and deep that you couldn't even wade out of it. When you have members of Congress wearing a kente cloth that's associated with uh, a vicious slaveholding society, and yet, well, it doesn't mean that to us, so we, we can wear it now. I mean, again, where is the hypocrisy meter? So we look at 2021, and of course you've got you know, Boyd Cathy talking. It's a great article, what, what 2020 means for Southerners. And it's not good. I mean, monuments coming down uh, or vandalized to the point of being unrecognizable. Uh, not just that, you know, the t- changing of Confederate names. But we all mentioned this is going to be the low-hanging fruit, and this is just the start. It didn't really start, though, in 2020. It started long before that. And you have this piece by Josh Dogrell uh, talking about how the... In the 1990s, the NAACP had to come up with another symbol. They had accomplished almost every one of their goals, but they had to come up with something else to raise money. And so they started focusing on Confederate symbols. And for a long time, they never even were concerned with the battle flag. That wasn't anything that was on their radar. In fact, you have John Lewis pictured shaking hands in front of a Confederate battle flag. This is not something they saw as a problem. But yet by the 1990s, when they needed to raise money, it became a problem. And of course, the agenda then became to tell people this thing is racist, this thing is awful, and it needs to be out of public spaces. When you have the governor of New York issuing a a directive that other symbols of hate, including the Confederate flag, will not be sold on state property any longer. I mean, this is where we are. And of course, he's equating the Confederate flag with the Nazi swastika and other things. If you go into the National Infantry Museum, you can see these things are subtle. Go into the National Infantry Museum in Columbus, Georgia, and see how Confederates are portrayed in that. They're the enemy. They're not, this is not a war between two Americans. 
This is a war between an enemy and the good guys, which is the U.S. Army. When that type of indoctrination is there at all levels, whether you're at elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and also from both sides, the left and the right, what's left for the South? That's the problem that we find ourselves in with the Southern tradition. It's a sticky situation to be certain. Because when you start talking about what the South means for America, the intro, well, then the South is just based on race. But we know that's not true. We know that I mean, you can't. That would that would imply that the North wasn't racist. That the North didn't have a racist bone in their body. Northerners were just pure, holy, moral people who just worried about the plights of black slaves. We know that wasn't the case. We know that Northerners were just as racist as Southerners. We know that the, that slavery Northerners profited extensively from slavery. We know that Northerners, in fact, maybe Northerners were more racist than Southerners, and openly so. But that you have to have the good and the bad. You have to have the shining, the, the guy in the white hat and the guy in the black hat, and the South becomes that guy in the black hat. But the Southern tradition offers so much. When you look at our current political mess, and we don't, we didn't have published anything on this this week, but just to mention, you look at the current political mess where you have 50 people controlling the other 50 people. Well, Calhoun had much to say about that, and that was the concurrent majority. You, a numerical majority is never going to be a real majority because it can be so narrow that the other side is going to be abused. And essentially, that's what we're seeing now in many places across the United States, including the central government. The numerical majority is going to abuse the, the very close numerical minority. And they're going to do it and be glad about doing it. You look at the language that's being used. I haven't seen this kind of rhetoric in America since the 1850s and looking at historical documents. When, when uh, Southerners were called vomit, devils. And that meant something. When you called somebody a devil in the 1850s, with the United States being as uh, oriented towards religion as it was at that point, when you call Southerners devils, that is a serious slap at their character. Now, I mean, most people don't even blink an eye at that anymore. But in the 1850s, that was a serious accusation. You made that charge, and you're calling someone a demon, evil personified. And they took that seriously. Now, when you see someone on the right have something bad happen to them, have some, I mean, they get killed, God forbid, or injured in some way doing something, well, they deserved it. When this happens to someone on the left, these people are heroes. And that's the mainstream media. We know that there are other avenues out there that people are looking at alternate media sites now, but this is what you get. And part of that is because we've got this level of rhetoric and this nationalism. The South offers a counterweight to that. Calhoun said, look, we don't need to have this. Let's have a concurrent majority. Let's have it to where one state could simply knock down an entire piece of legislation simply because it could injure the people of that state. And not only that, we should have a situation where the majority cannot plunder the minority whether it's economically, whether it's socially, whether it's politically, you just can't do it. That would be where federalism would really work. And the Southern tradition is part and parcel of that. Now, the South didn't create all these things. I mean, you look at, for example, nullification, which is often associated with the South and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who 
discussed it in 1798 with the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions. But both Northerners and Southerners were nullifying laws in the 1760s and 70s that they considered to be oppressive and unjust. Northerners and Southerners. In reality, the Jeffersonian position of America really is the American position. What we see beyond that is not really American, so to speak. It's a different kind of political sensibility that I think finds most of its currency in Europe. But the Jeffersonian position is purely American. And it can go in different directions. You can have far-left Jeffersonians. You can have conservative Jeffersonians. And I've, I wrote about this. We're all Jeffersonians at one point. Because that Jeffersonian vision of America, decentralized, small communities, states having powers. This is, I mean, look, Kevin Goodsman's book, and we're going to have Kevin Goodsman on a Zoom conference at some time to talk about Jefferson or Madison or Virginia in particular. That That idea of this... Jefferson as a federalist with the the real federalist federal republic that's one that, that's that was his driving agenda he could be a reformer in virginia but his reform stopped at the mountains and didn't go beyond there it didn't go into maryland it didn't go into north carolina it stayed in virginia and i think that's the thing that we should take away from that this requires though on the other hand and a commitment to federalism that would mean that you would stop worrying about what happens in California or Oregon or Washington or Massachusetts. Now, most Southerners don't even think about those things anyways. But for those who are committed to something else, they want something else. They want to focus on what everybody else does everywhere else. That domestic imperialism, that's the real problem. It's the root of all the angst in America. So I love this piece by Boyd Cathy. I love the piece by Josh Dogrell. And you had a couple other interesting pieces. The piece by Cliff Page, which is uh, about some postcards that he found in, a, in an old you know, yard sale, these old postcards. And he mentions that you know these used to be treasures for people to have these type of things, but they're postcards of Robert E. Lee, which no one is going to want to pick up anymore. He says, the current generation of humanity in America has become a genetic hybrid fusing the jellyfish with the sheep, spineless followers of little character and no direction, floating about, forgetting the past, and able to see into the darkness, sucking them into the future. And, well, look, we're seeing a real cultural revolution in America. The culture war has now come home. Pat Buchanan, Southerner, talked about it in 1992. You had Southerners talking about these things for years. And whatever you think about you know, George Wallace, for example, and his views on race in the 1960s, when he was running for president, he pointed out you know, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties. And it's something he said all the time. We have establishment, and then we have everybody else. And we're seeing that on display now in Washington, D.C. But it's the culture war that now is becoming important. Who knew that history was going to be on the ballot? in 2020 and 2021, but it is. This is the problem with America and why we're seeing so much angst and anger and anxiety. But you know what? What could handle that would be real federalism. The piece we ran on Thursday, the VMI test case for the country by Forrest Marion. Great piece. We've gotten a lot of good comments off of this. 
It's one of the best pieces to... Forrest Marin, of course, went to VMI. It is a wonderful piece defending Jackson, but not just that. Um, defending VMI, the old VMI, and having a statue like this there and talking about you know who Jackson was and why it was important to have that there. He says, the VMI community, Virginians, indeed Americans who care about the survival of their institutions, must reject completely the pernicious and poisonous concept of structural racism under a neo-Marxist-based definition. Otherwise, do not be surprised one day to find that not only Stonewall statue been taken away, other institutions will necessarily follow, among them families, schools, businesses, and churches. If one of the most staunchly Mediocratic, honor-bound, and for decades colorblind institutions in the country, the Virginia Military Institution, can be made to implement fundamental changes deemed by advocates of a neo-Marxist-based ideology. All institutions are at risk. This is true. It's not really about Jackson. It's not really about Lee. It's not really about any of this. It's about what people consider to be now systemic races. This is the term that's being used. And what does that even mean? And we've talked about this on the podcast. What does that term even mean? It's lost all of its meaning. When everything is considered systemically racist, when I mean racism by itself, you have to change the definition over time. But he brings up family, schools, businesses. I mean, all these things that are byproducts of Western civilization, which essentially is what's under attack here. The nuclear family has been deemed to be... Uh, racist by some. Uh, certain foods, certain institutions, marriage, for example, is considered to be racist. It's a system of, of Europe, the way that we consider marriage. And this has been floating around now for a long time. And because of, I think, social media, because of the dumbing down of American society, a lot of the stuff is becoming contemporary. It's gone mainstream where it used to be just stuff you laughed about. What are you talking about? This is stupid. But no, stupidity is now mainstream. Back in the 90s, I remember I had a professor saying that the garbage is rising to the top and the cream is going to the bottom. And essentially, we're seeing it all over the place. Why? Because they say the right things, they have the right platitudes and rhetoric, and it doesn't matter how garbage these people really are. They say the right things, and they say them at the right time. We're going to have a wonderful piece next week on... Um, uh, this idea of uh, the notion of it being popular to be a social justice warrior. And it's, it's old. I mean, this is going back, what's going to be talked about is something that's 50 years old. But we've got a system now in place. It's being foisted on us. And, of course, the Biden administration is going to do much to do this, where you know, any opposition to the any opposition to the traditional canon of acceptable heroes is now going to get you called all kinds of names. Even if you're not, even if there's no proof of anything, just because you admire people. Booker T. Washington admired Robert E. Lee. Does that make him a racist? That's kind of funny. And then the piece on Friday, the last piece, a Maryland Southern hero. Uh, we've, you know, we've seen people, or there were people, of course, back at this time, you know, and this is a, this is a story about Richard Bennett Carmichael, who was a Talbot County, Maryland judge, 
He heroically invalidated the imprisonment of non-combatant civilians. And this was standing up for the federal government. And the case, what what happens is interesting. As uh, this particular piece is written by Paul Callahan, he says, Federal authorities cannot allow this to happen. To demonstrate a public display of overwhelming force, 125 federal troops surrounded the Talbot County Courthouse. Troops entered the courthouse while the judge was holding trial and viciously beat the old judge unconscious and drug him from the courthouse. Judge Carmichael was then in prison without any charges being filed against him. Judge Carmichael's beating was so vicious that the defense attorney at the trial attempted to come to the old judge's aid, and this attorney was also beaten by the federal troops. You see, what people don't realize is how vicious the political violence is part and parcel of the American tradition. You can even go back to the U.S. Constitution. There was violent violence against the opponents of the document in Pennsylvania. Political violence was par for the course. Federal troops marching in and doing this to a judge. Can you imagine this taking place today? Well, if you're on the right side, it's okay. If you're on the wrong side, it's not okay. Even this would be, well, this guy's on the wrong side. Callahan says, though, too late to help the citizens of Maryland, what Judge Carmichael attempted to do to have the unlawful imprisonment and executions of non-combatant civilians heard by a higher court came to pass. Late in the Civil War, federal troops in Indiana arrested and sentenced to death an Indiana non-combatant civilian. President Lincoln sent a message to the military commander that, that they're to carry out the execution as quickly as possible. Somehow this case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court that ruled that Mr. Lincoln's policy of allowing federal troops to imprison and execute non-combatant civilians was a violation of the Constitution of the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court stated that even with the writ of habeas corpus suspended, that in any state that was not in rebellion, when where the district, circuit, and federal courts were open, federal forces were required by the U.S. Constitution to turn over any civilians to the civilian courts for determination of tri- charges and trial. This is exactly what Judge Carmichael attempted to do. The Supreme Court case was ex parte Milligan, which is a very important case, 1866. Callahan says the citizens of Talbot County and all Americans should be greatly proud of Judge Carmichael, an elderly bespeckled judge who stood firm against an overwhelming force. Though he knew the great danger to himself, Judge Carmichael stood firm in his duty to the U.S. Constitution and to the citizens of that county. I like this piece. First of all, it brings out Maryland, uh, which is an important, you know, underrated part of the South, but that there were people all over the South in the United States that were taking things seriously in the affront to the Constitution that the Republican Party presented. Uh, in Delaware, for example, the Republican Party slept on the Speaker's platform. You know, the, the, the troops, I should say, slept on the Speaker's platform as they invaded the State House. Shut down the legally elected State House. But no, we've never seen violence like this perpetrated the other day in Washington, D.C. This is from people who are ahistorical. So I love this stuff. We're glad to be back. Thankful to be here. Please consider supporting the Institute in any way you can. Even a dollar or two a month is greatly appreciated. That's all you can afford. Hey, we'll take every penny of it to try to do the things that we need to do. Everything we do, the podcast, the website, all that stuff isn't free. So if you like what we do, consider a donation 
to keep it going. All right. With that said, until next time, good day. <laughs>